chapter 4, and I will remind you that uh, several weeks ago, I mentioned that we would do a Q&A on the book of Romans. We occasionally do a question and answer time on Sunday mornings. Uh, this time, we will do a question and answer time specifically for the book of Romans, and I had encouraged you that as we were working through these early chapters to be writing questions down. So we're going to do that in two weeks, okay? In two weeks, we should be through chapter four, and that'll be a good break between chapter four and chapter five, and we'll do that Q&A then on March 31st. So make sure you keep in track of whatever kinds of questions you have. If we get to that time, and nobody really has any questions about Romans, then certainly we'll open up the floor and just take whatever questions you have. But at this point, be planning for the book of Romans. All right, Romans chapter 4. These passages in the book of Romans are some of the most important for understanding the heart of Jesus' gospel and what it means really to be a Christian. Digging in to really grasp theological truths like justification and redemption and propitiation, what we mean by faith alone and what we mean by grace alone. These pursuits and trying to grasp these things are, is not academic. Because these truths reveal how a person is made right with God instead of coming under his wrath, which is not a very popularly held view, understanding that God does exact wrath, that God will judge the human race. Even though it's unpopular, it's true. And Romans chapters 1 and 2 make that very clear. And we know from Romans so far that we are made right before God. We are justified by faith and faith alone and nothing of our own to merit this righteous standing before God. Paul pictures us in the courtroom, God's courtroom, before the judge. And there we stand guilty. There we stand condemned as rebels against God, as part of the human race who has suppressed the truth and who has exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the things that that God has created. We face judgment. How can we be made right? Nothing makes this more clear than Romans chapter 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified, made right before God. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In Romans chapter 4, Paul now explains how this faith justifies. How does it do that? What is it that the faith that we uh, exercise that we believe, what is it that believing does? How is it that this faith justifies a sinner? How can my faith justify this rebel standing in the courtroom of God? How can I be justified only by believing and not achieving that righteousness? 
Let's look at Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So, Lord, we come today now to hear your word, to wrestle with it, to give our lives to it. Lord, give us understanding. Help us to, to grasp how these Crucial words have such great meaning for your people today and for the human race. In your name, we ask these things. Amen. So how is it that a sinner or rebel can be justified, made right before God, by only believing and not achieving? Did you see the answer? It's found in verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, and then at the end of this passage that we'll conclude with next week, verse 22, verse 23, and verse 24. It is the word counted. Counted. Or, depending on what version you have, it might be reckoned or credited, or imputed. Now, it is from this word that we get the doctrine of imputation. So we've talked about justification. We have talked about propitiation. We have talked about redemption. And now I want you to see imputation. Imputation means that the righteousness we have that justifies us before God is now not our own. It is not our own, but it is given to us. It is imputed to us by God. Meaning it is credited to us because we believe. 
This righteousness is supplied to us as a free gift of grace. And this is how faith alone justifies us. It isn't because our faith in and of itself is a work that achieves righteousness. It is that in believing God, trusting in him, God then imputes or counts our faith as righteousness to our account. This is how faith alone justifies us. It must be and can only be received by faith. Now, I mentioned last time that Martin Luther once said that if this article, justification by faith alone, if this truth stands, the church stands. If it falls, the church falls. I will add that if imputed righteousness stands, then justification by faith alone stands. And if the imputation of righteousness falls, then justification by faith alone falls. It becomes meaningless. And all of the conflict between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church over justification by faith, it is the imputation of righteousness. It is this counting of righteousness or the crediting of righteousness that was most hotly debated. And to this day, it divides evangelical Christianity from Roman Catholicism. So if you've ever wondered what is the difference between what we believe as evangelical Christians and what St. Thomas More right down the street teaches and holds to, this is at the very center of it. It is this imputation of righteousness and what it means for being justified by faith alone. Evangelical Christianity teaches that our righteousness is foreign. That means it is, or in the words of the Reformers, it is an alien righteousness. It is a righteousness that comes to us from outside of ourselves. It is not something that we can produce. It is not something we can achieve. It is not something we can negotiate for. It is a gift of grace. God supplies and applies this righteousness to us. Roman Catholicism holds that God infuses grace into our lives and that this grace enables us to achieve this righteousness. Those two things sound very similar, but they are fundamentally worlds apart. That's why, if, if you're just talking at a surface level, you might wonder, what's, why, why did Roman Catholicism call themselves Christians and we call ourselves Christians and this is Christendom or Christianity? Is there really a divide? Because if you say grace, we would both say, absolutely, grace is necessary for salvation. It is absolutely necessary, God's grace. You cannot be saved without God's grace. But when we say it, we're saying it is grace alone 
It has nothing to do with what we produce in our lives. Someone who holds to Roman Catholic doctrine is saying that, yes, grace is necessary because grace is infused to me that enables me then to achieve righteousness before God. Eternity is at stake in the difference between those two understandings. Martin Luther especially battled over this difference. So sharp was the division over this teaching that when the Roman Catholic Church countered the Reformation with its Council of Trent, which began in the year 1545 and ended in the year 1563, it condemned justification by faith alone and imputed righteousness, and it damned anyone who taught it. Just to give you an example, the Council of Trent, Session 6, the ninth canon reads, If anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified so as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema, let him be damned. The 11th canon Reads, if anyone says that men are justified either by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ alone or by the remission of sins alone to the exclusion of the grace and love that is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Spirit and is inherent in them, or even that the grace by which we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema. Canon 24. If anyone says that the righteousness received is not preserved and also not increased before God by good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of its increase, let him be damned, let him be anathema. Canon 30, if anyone says that the guilt is remitted to every penitent sinner after the grace of justification has been received and that the debt of eternal punishment is so blotted out that there remains no debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in the next in purgatory before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened, let him be anathema." What that last one is saying is this. If you believe and if you teach that Jesus' death and resurrection justify you completely and forever without ever any more need for you to go through suffering and pain and penance, whether in this life or in the afterlife, if you claim that, you have that security, you have been justified finally and completely, you are damned. So these are the things that came out of the Council of Trent. And just to put these statements in perspective, there have only been two Roman Catholic ecumenical councils since the Council of Trent. Trent concluded in 1563, the First Vatican Council concluded in 1870, and the Second Vatican Council concluded in 1969. And those declarations of Trent have never been overturned or modified even till this day, 450 plus years later. Now, this may seem outside of 
application. He says, Sean, why are you telling us all of this? Because just 25 years ago, in 1994, a group of evangelical leaders and Catholic leaders produced a document called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. Some of you may remember this. In this document, they called for evangelicals and Catholics to lay aside doctrinal differences to accomplish common mission in our culture. This, of course, caused no small controversy in evangelical Christianity, nor did it in Roman Catholicism. And what they were calling for is saying we have certain goals in our culture that we hold in common. Things we want to see. We want to see the sanctity of life protected. For example. And there are others. We want public obscenity to not be part of our culture. And there are other things. But the thing was that it left this saying, the document, said that these doctrinal differences don't matter because we all want to be on the same mission of exalting the Lordship of Christ. The problem is, to do that, you've got to preach the gospel. Which gospel are you going to preach? So the document itself lost a lot of steam and a lot of power, but it is still referred to today as a step toward unifying the two. Like I said, I don't, I don't say all of this to wax eloquent on church history, really not even to attack Roman Catholicism. We are called to love people, even if they're, uh, especially if they're outside of the church and outside of the gospel. But it is necessary to expose the error and to clarify the gospel, especially when something sounds so close to, sounds so similar to the Christian faith. There's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake historically and culturally. It explains what divides us, why we aren't the same faith. There's a lot at stake theologically. How is a person made right with God? How is a person saved from judgment? There is only one gospel. And the Council of Trent and the Reformed faith cannot both be true. So ultimately, eternity is at stake. And when we come to Romans chapter 4, it is an extremely important portion of Scripture because it is fundamental to the gospel, it is fundamental to the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul faced similar opposition from the Judaism of his day, which held that this righteousness they Uh, that they had this righteousness, they could achieve it because they were given the law. This is why in Romans chapter 4, Paul points to whom? Abraham. Abraham. Paul highlights Abraham's justification as the supreme proof that our faith is counted to us as righteousness, apart from works. These verses then proceed to explain six ways Abraham's justification proves our faith is counted as righteousness. Six ways Abraham's justification proves that our faith is counted as righteousness. First of all, 
Abraham's justification proves righteousness is imputed, not earned. It is imputed, not earned. Abraham, he is the father of the Jewish nation. It is Father Abraham to whom the Jews looked as the supreme example of righteousness. Read John chapters 6 and 8 sometime, the Gospel of John. You see the Pharisees, the Jewish leadership, arguing with Jesus and claiming for the basis of everything they are, are arguing with him about, Abraham is our father. Abraham would have been the example that they would have used to refute Paul, to argue against what Paul is saying. But Paul now points to Abraham as the proof that righteousness must be credited. It must be counted to us, never achieved by us. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, Abraham... What about him? He is the supreme example of righteousness. You're right. But even Abraham couldn't boast in any works. When he was before God, when he was in God's presence, did Abraham boast of his works? Genesis 15 verse 6 tells us no. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was counted to him. Now, if you don't recall, the story in Genesis 15 uh, is a continuation of God's interaction with Abraham, God's revealing to Abraham. Abraham has already been called in chapter 12. He has left the land of his uh, ancestors, he has moved to the promised land just by faith. God called him and said, I'm going to give you this land, pack up your family and move. And Abraham has done that. And at this point in chapter 15, Abraham begins to question and say, you haven't given me an heir yet. How are you going to make a great people out of me? Something that God had already told him in chapter 12. And Genesis chapter 15 is this, this story of this beautiful picture where God takes Abraham outside at night and shows him the stars and says, number the stars if you can. So shall I make your descendants. So shall I make the nations that come from you. Verse 6 is Abraham's response. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was credited to him, imputed to him. And really what follows here then is Paul's exposition of Genesis chapter 15. But Abraham's justification, what made him righteous in God's eyes, was not words. Here he is. God himself has woken Abraham up pulled him out of his tent, showed him the starry sky, made him promises, and not once does Abraham say, that's good, These, this is my due, because I have achieved this status before you. I have obeyed you. I have moved from the land of Ur. 
Never once does Abraham appeal to that. Abraham hears God's promise and he believes him. So first of all, Abraham's justification proves righteousness is imputed, not earned. Secondly, Abraham's justification proves righteousness is a gift received. It is a gift received. Verse 4, Paul presents two systems, two possibilities. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Now, we know this is the way labor and income works. You work a job. You fulfill the duties of, but that your employer has given to you. And as a wage, as a reward or a due, he gives you income. He gives you wages. You get what you earn. We know that's the way it works. Paul is now saying that, that in God's economy, righteousness works differently. In fact, it works just the opposite. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. No one gets a job and then expects that just because they have believed that his or her employer will pay him, that the employer says, you know what, you've actually believed me. You haven't done a thing this week or ever. But because I've promised to you and you've believed me, here's your wages. Unless you work for the government. (laughs) Ha ha, okay, sorry. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Paul says, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This phrase, him who justifies the ungodly, tells the whole story, doesn't it? It says it all. Who does the justifying? God. The same one who judges is the one who justifies. Whom does he justify? The ungodly, not the godly who have achieved their godliness, the ungodly. In fact, this is the same word that Paul used back in chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So ungodly... This word describes the entire human race of Romans chapter 1. And what Paul implies by this is that Abraham was also ungodly. That Abraham didn't have some special qualification of being something other than ungodly. That's the miracle, isn't it? Isn't that the astounding part? That the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. And yet it is the very judge, the very God whom we have rebelled against, whom is offended by our sin and rightfully so, and has every right 
to condemn us and every right to judge us is the very one who offers justification, provides for it. So you see then there are these two systems. You can demand from God the wages your works have earned you. You can approach God that way. Most people do. They come to God expecting, working in this system, that God gives them the wages they have earned. Or you can confess that you are ungodly and trust in God to credit righteousness to you. Why is that so hard to do? Because it requires absolute humility. It requires confession, repentance, acknowledgement. I am ungodly and I deserve the condemnation. I deserve the judgment of the judge before whom I stand. The human race does not want to be indebted to God. We human beings, men and women, want our independence from God. And to claim that if we can achieve the righteousness on our own, we at least achieve part of it or enough of it or cooperate with God's grace enough that we can be justified. But it is this second option, confessing that we are ungodly and trusting in him to credit righteousness to us. It is the second option that is the only way to blessing, according to David in Psalm 32. Paul quotes David, and he is simply citing David as the author of Psalm 32 because Psalm 32 affirms Abraham's experience And is also true for us. And the key words for Paul are the words blessing and counted. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessing here. It's it's the same as gift. It's the opposite of wages. Blessing. Blessing, gift, it comes by grace. It is offered or bestowed. It is not earned or merited. And with this word counted, he links Psalm 32 with Genesis 15. Now in Psalm 32, the blessing is what is not counted to us. Do you see that? It is what is not counted against us. And what what Paul is really revealing, what he's showing here, is that righteousness cannot be counted to a person without that person's sin being forgiven and cleansed. These are both parts of being justified before God. There is a forgiveness and a cleansing Justification entails both this forgiveness and this 
receiving a righteousness that is not our own, that is credited to us. Our sin has to be expunged. And righteousness has to be found, and that is given to us. You can't have one without the other. So in both Genesis 15, Abraham, and in Psalm 32, David, it is God who is counting or not counting. Both are blessings apart from works. That's Paul's point. If we approach God with the system of wages, laborers and wages, and we demand from him what we have earned by what we've worked for, that gets us judgment. True blessing. True grace is known when our sins are not counted against us by, by mercy, by grace, outside of anything that we could have ever deserved. And righteousness is given to us. So Abraham's justification proves that righteousness is a gift that is received. Thirdly, Abraham's justification proves that Abraham is our father. That Abraham is our father. Verse 9, Paul's argument here is really a matter of sequence, isn't it? Is this blessing, and you see he picks up this word blessing from Psalm 32 now. Is this blessing, this forgiveness and righteousness that's given to us, this justification, he who justifies the ungodly, that's the blessing. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So circumcision was the special sign of the covenant. Now it was reinforced under Moses. Moses, the law was given to Moses. But it was actually instituted in Genesis chapter 17. God commanded Abraham to circumcise his sons and then their sons and to circumcise their sons and so on forever. That was part of this covenant with Abraham. It was a sign. But instead of the special sign of the covenant being established first and therefore Abraham Obeying God and keeping this sign of the covenant by circumcising himself and all of his sons, which weren't there yet, by the way. But instead of that being established first and producing righteousness, what came first? Faith. Abraham had already believed God. Abraham had already been uh, received righteousness that was counted to him. Faith came first. Genesis 15 comes first, then Genesis chapter 17. And you say, okay, what's the big... It's a big deal if you think that because you belong to Abraham's race, that circumcision qualifies you 
to be justified. Paul is saying that's not possible. And in fact, because the opposite is true, the the doors are opened for everyone to be Uh, to believe and have that counted as righteousness. What was the role of circumcision? Verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So it was a seal, a sign. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. What he, he doesn't mean here that Abraham's faith enables us to also believe and be justified. He means that Abraham's faith reveals. It is Abraham's faith that demonstrates the way that we can be justified, which is by believing and receiving righteousness is counted to us. That is the only way. It is in this way that Abraham is our father. We too can say, Father Abraham. Our children sing a song in Sunday school, VBS. If you've ever been, you will remember, Father Abraham had many sons, right? You were one of them, and so am I. Okay? Or I am one of them, so are you. That's Abraham. I got to get that right. I mean, Abraham is our father, meaning that we belong to him. We belong to his line. We belong to his family because we have believed in him who justifies the ungodly and who counts our faith to us as righteousness. That is what ties us to Abraham. Now, in the next verses, Paul is going to explain what that means because Abraham is our father. But in verse 12, he makes this point. It isn't only us. And by us, I mean at large Gentiles, people who are not included under the covenant. And remember, in the church of Rome, there's a large number of believers who are Jews, who have come out of the Jewish faith, who have trusted in Christ. And there are a number of Gentiles who have heard the gospel and responded in faith and come to Christ. And so the Roman church is a large Jewish and largely Gentile. And Paul makes this point then in verse 12. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So watch. The sequence, Abraham's faith first and his justification that that was counted to him as righteousness, because that happens before he was circumcised, Those who are not circumcised, who don't belong nationally and ethnically to the descendants of Abraham, they too call him father because faith is what brought the righteousness. Faith was counted as righteousness. Those who are circumcised can also be called Abraham's children, not only ethnically, culturally, 
nationally, but spiritually as well, because they, even though they are circumcised, are also justified the same way, by faith. All of this because Abraham believed and believed first, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So by faith, both the Jew and Gentile. If you go back again to chapter 1, verse 17, why is Paul writing this letter? For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. This is what he's talking about all the way back in chapter 1, verse 17. That from beginning to end, it's faith. It is faith that justifies. And the gospel reveals this. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Why is this so crucial? Why is Paul preach? Why is the gospel this truth? Because verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Because that is happening, our only hope, the only way is to come to him who justifies the ungodly. And the only way we can be made right is to believe him, is to trust him. That is the gospel we believe. That is the gospel that we proclaim. He has made the way. The judge himself has provided the righteousness that we need and gives it to those who will believe him. And so, Father, we come to you and we thank you We can only thank you for this blessing which is bestowed on us as well because we believe. And we too call Abraham father because his faith in you reveals to us how it is only by trusting you that we can be made right before you. And so, Lord, we come with empty hands. Just as we came when we were first justified, we come with empty hands today to worship. And our gratitude to you and our confidence in your love for us is not found in our achievement, but because you have spoken because you have declared us right before you. And so our prayers and our songs and our taking of the Lord's Supper today, we do with joy as your people made right before you. We praise you and we thank you. In your name, we proclaim these things and ask them. Amen. Amen, indeed.